Thanks, guys. We're going to spend some time looking at the Scripture together now. At Grace Bible Church, we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus Himself. And so every week we open up the Word to hear from Him, to listen. So I want to invite you to do that with us. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we'll be looking at the resurrection story from John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some black Bibles under the chairs, and you can grab one of those uh, and open that up to page 906. So page 906 in the black Bibles, it's John chapter 20. This is the fourth gospel. Uh, The different gospels focus on different things. John is probably the most artistic and poetic of the four gospel writers. So we've been in a series where we've been looking at the different symbols of who Jesus is. Jesus repeatedly tells us that he's uh, a shepherd, um, that he's the true temple, um, that he is one that we can trust. And one symbol that comes up again and again in the book of John is the symbol of light. Jesus is the true light of the world. And so in the resurrection, we see light coming into our darkness. So that's what we want to talk about today, light in the darkness. Years ago, I was a security guard, and I worked an overnight shift at a little college down the road from where I was doing my graduate school studies. Um, And so basically, my whole job was to bring light in the darkness to help people to feel safe, to help college students feel like they were safe. Um, I would walk down dark hallways, check locks, check lights. I had a flashlight I carried around with me. I made the college students feel safer because of that. I also especially made the parents feel safer, you know, because they knew there was a security guard there. Um, My whole purpose was to bring light in the darkness. Sometimes, though, um, I would challenge myself, and I would see how far I could go down these dark hallways of these empty uh, schoolrooms at night in the college, right, down in the basement with no lights on. I would see how long I could go with the flashlight off, right, before it just completely freaked me out. Have you ever done something like that where you kind of test your limits I think we don't often know true darkness. I know there's a testing center at Fort Hood that's like way underground where people can do absolute dark kind of training. I don't know if y'all know about this. It's secret, so maybe I shouldn't have told you. Um, But in our society, we don't know true darkness very often, right? We just have lights everywhere. There's just electric lights everywhere. So sometimes I'm afraid we miss how important this is. Light is so important. It's, it's a metaphor that's used throughout the Bible to tell us about what God is like. He shows us where to go, right? So we don't stumble around in the darkness. He informs us so we can understand things. It's also a symbol of, of purity and righteousness. And so Jesus comes along and he says, that's, that's who I am. I'm that light that you need. Well, what's really fascinating is the way that John writes this story. He's the one of all the four gospels that focuses the beginning of the story on darkness, This story starts in darkness, right? We've got these followers of Jesus. They're confused by what's happened. They've just seen their Savior murdered. They've seen their Savior destroyed, and they don't yet fully understand what's happening. So what I want you to do as we're looking at this today is to try to put yourself in their shoes. Try to think, what would that have been like for me to to discover these things as the events unfold? They've been following Jesus. They see him healing people. They see him teaching the word. They see him loving outsiders, and then he's murdered. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. That last little sentence is helpful to pull us in, right? These powerful leaders of the early church, what did they do? They discovered the empty tomb and then they, they just went back home, right? I'm going to pray that the Lord would enable us to, to enter into the story, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. Again, we believe that, that God speaks to us through these words, through these stories, and so I'm going to pray that His Spirit would meet us here. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us without any communication. You haven't left us without instruction, but you've spoken to us. In Hebrews 1, it says you've spoken to us in many ways and many times and in these last days through your son, Jesus. And so we want to hear from him. We want him to call our name. We want to understand who he is and what he's doing in the world. And so we pray that you would meet us here. Lord, that supernatural things would happen. Our eyes would be opened. You would teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we work through this text, as I said, we want to kind of focus around the idea of light and darkness. This idea that, that God is the light, specifically Jesus is the light we need, and we all, to some degree, walk in some level of darkness. And so we're going to try to put ourselves in their shoes. Remember that these first followers didn't have it all figured out, but they were discovering things just like you and me. We're discovering more about Jesus every day. We don't just kind of have this perfect faith downloaded and then we have no more questions, but we continue to have questions. We continue to need to learn. We have to study this book. We have to pray. We have to obey what God tells us to do even when we don't quite understand it. And so there's a process we're all going through. and We'll see a very similar process in their life. So three things I want us to, to watch as we move through this text. One is we need to define the darkness. Like, what is the darkness? It's used at a lot of different symbolic levels in John, so we need to understand what he's talking about when he talks about darkness. So we need to define the darkness in our life and in the story. And then secondly, we need to learn how to face the darkness. We see the first followers of Jesus facing the darkness, diving in, dealing with it. You and I, and people in the first century as well, have a habit of kind of numbing ourselves and turning away from the darkness, avoiding it, not wanting to think about it. But we see a great example here of them facing it, just, just diving in and dealing with it. And then finally, we're going to understand how we can then find light in the darkness. How do, we, how do we find light the way that these first followers of Jesus found light? So first of all, let's define the darkness. Verse 1, we want to define this darkness. Again, John, of all the gospel writers, says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, if you study all the gospels, I think it's helpful I encourage you to do this. You can lay out what's called a, a harmony of the Gospels. You can buy these things that put them in chronological order and kind of splice together the different accounts because we all get different emphases from the different writers, right? One writer wants to focus on this part and one writer wants to focus on that part. 
I want to encourage you that that doesn't mean there's contradictions there. That just means just like you and I, when we tell a story, have you ever done this? Uh, I'm, I've been married 25 years. When, when I tell a story, my wife will be like, oh, oh don't forget this part, right? Because she thinks that part's important. I wasn't going to say that part, but she thinks that part's important. Has that ever happened to you when you're telling a story? Well, that's basically what the gospel writers are doing, right? Like Matthew wrote his gospel, and then Mark's like, oh, 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 what about this part, right? And Luke's like, oh, don't forget about this part. And John's like, oh, this part's really important. And they're telling from different perspectives the parts that are most important to them. They want you to see it from different perspectives. Here, we see that darkness was really important to John. Darkness is important. Why is darkness important? Because circumstantially, he's, he's hitting on the reality that all of these disciples, these followers of Jesus, were in utter spiritual darkness. They were just devastated. They were broken, emotionally dark. They were just confused, right? Remember, what does darkness symbolize? We can miss this because we have light everywhere, right? Darkness is like, I don't know where to go. Have you ever been in a hotel room late at night and you ran into something and it hurt really bad? That's what darkness means. And, and a lot of us don't experience that very often, so it's a distant metaphor for us. But the idea is you don't, you don't know where you're going. You're going to trip. You're going to break your ankle. You're going to fall into a hole. And that's where they were emotionally. They were like, what has happened? Our Lord has been murdered. They felt this heavy darkness. And so that's why John focuses on that, because this is a major theme for John. You can find it in John chapter 1. You can pick it up again in John chapter 8. You can see it in his little letter, 1 John, where he talks about it in this little letter at the end of the Bible. And so it's a major theme for John, a symbol of God's purity, his direction, him showing us where to go. It's also a symbol of life, right? It says in John chapter 1, this, this light that Jesus brings also brings life to people. Uh, the way Jesus describes it in John chapter 8 is if you follow him, you won't stumble around in the darkness anymore. That's what he offers you. But we all start with our own darkness. This morning we had a sunrise service. The sun was just coming up. And you could ask the people who were there, um, was that a service in the dark or was it a service in the light? Which was it? It was both, right? It was both. And so you've got other gospel writers saying, no, they discovered the tomb in the early morning hours when the light was coming up. And he's saying here, that was dark, man. It was dark. Well, I was at the sunrise service this morning and parts of it were very dark and scary as we were like stumbling in, trying to get set up and the lights weren't on yet. But then the sun rose, it came up, and then we could see. That's the same experience that these guys had. My question for you is, what's the emotional darkness that you're in right now? Because Jesus really does care about that. He meets you where you are. In Hebrews 4, we're told that we have a, a great high priest in Jesus that is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he's been through the kinds of struggles that all human beings go through. He's been tempted, tested in every way, yet without sin. And so we can sometimes jump to the yet without sin part and be like, so Jesus doesn't get me, right? But Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was murdered. Jesus was beaten. People talked trash about Jesus. People opposed Jesus. His family didn't believe in him. Jesus was lonely. He was hungry. He suffered in every way that human beings suffer. Jesus gets you. He knows what it's like to be in whatever physical or emotional darkness you're in right now or you've been in in your past. And I think that's really important that we understand that. And then we say Jesus cares, he understands, but he wants to take us beyond our immediate circumstances of darkness and say there's something more important for you to understand, and that is the spiritual darkness. And so he describes this in John 8, the big chapter where he talks about being the light of the world. 
And he tells the religious leaders, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. So he's helping us to see that our sin is the ultimate darkness. It's the ultimate stumbling around, right? So when we sin, what we do is we say, God, I I don't want to do life your way. I want to do life my way. And so we start walking in this direction thinking, God, I know you told me to do this, but I'm going to have more life and more security if I do this other thing. That's what sin is. It's defined in Romans 3.23 as falling short of the glory of God. God has made you and made me to be loving and gracious and just and kind. And we turn from that and say, I'm just going to take care of me. I'm just going to do my own thing, right? I'm going I'm to take care of my own needs. And that's sin. And Jesus says that's spiritual darkness. We need the light of Jesus to open our eyes like he does for the blind man to help us to see the truth of who he is. Let me take you to one more very specific place, the short letter of 1 John. John, the same writer that writes the Gospel of John, writes in this little letter called 1 John. He says that in God, God is perfect light and there's no darkness at all. And there are two ways to react to that as human beings. You can either lie and deny your darkness, deny your sin, or you can confess it and admit your need. And and what is the response? God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So so I want you to understand that God cares about whatever darkness you're going through right now, right? Just like he cared about them. They were confused. They They were struggling. Just like Jesus left and right would heal people. He would meet them where they are. He would heal them. If, if the man was paralyzed, he healed them. The man that was blind, he healed them. But he said, but there's something more important I want you to understand. Your sin that separates from you from God. And you need to deal with that. And that's what Jesus answers as the true light of the world. The story of Jesus dying on the cross for us is the story of Jesus taking our place, being the sacrifice that, that pays the, the punishment for our sins. And then the resurrection is the story of him being vindicated that he actually defeated death, that death didn't get the last word, but he overcame your death and my death as the perfect Lamb of God who takes away our sins. So First John says, don't lie and say you have no sin, but admit it, confess it before God. That's, I just want to encourage you today to be that person that's honest. And before we move on to the next point, I just want to explain there are two ways that people lie, right? Because you're all different people. Um, And I know you all do this in a million different ways, but I think there are two basic categories of of lying about our sin that we go to. One is if you're a non-religious person. And so the way that we lie about our sin if we're non-religious is we say, I refuse to admit that the category of sin even exists. You ever do that? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, But that's a common way we lie. We're like, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe God gets to tell me what to do. So therefore, I'm not guilty. But in those quiet moments you know there's something broken in your soul. You know there's something missing. You know you don't love people the way God has made you to love them. You know you're not just and kind like you were created to be. You know intuitively there's something deeply wrong. The other way that we lie is through religion. So those of you that are non-religious, you'll like this one, right? Because this is the one you see, right? We never see our own sin. We see other people's sin. So this is how religious people lie. Religious people say, look at me, I'm religious. Therefore, I'm better than that guy over there, right? And it's lying because James says really clearly in the letter that James writes that if you've broken the law in just one place, you've broken the whole thing. 
like being a little bit better than your neighbor is not the holiness of God. That's not the pure righteousness. You don't really love people perfectly all the time. And so what happens is we, we cover our shame with religion. We act like we've got it together. And in the end, we're lying about our sin. John says the only answer is, is to come to God and confess, admit. So if you defined the real darkness that you have to deal with, and that's our sin and separation from God, and recognizing, as Jesus says, he's the light of the world, and if you follow him, you won't stumble around in darkness anymore. You will have the light of spiritual life. The next thing I want us to see is how the first followers of Jesus face the darkness. And I mentioned this earlier, what we often do is we try to numb ourselves so we don't have to deal with the darkness. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. What do they do? They investigate more. They dig in. What do we often do? We go get drunk, right? We go find a new friend. Uh, we find a better job. We make more money, right? We come up with all these ways as human beings to, to numb the pain so we don't have to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. But here we see these first followers. Man, they're confused. They don't know what's going on, but they dig in. They face it. And they face it in different ways. So I think this is a kind of a cool picture where you can find yourself in one of these characters. We've got Mary Magdalene. We've got Peter. We've got John. Mary Magdalene, I'll set this up. She was someone who Jesus had cast multiple demons out of. So she was kind of like the scary person you would avoid, right? And Jesus had, had dignified her and said, I'm going to heal you. I love you. I'm going to give life to you. Peter. Peter was the kind of bumbling, impulsive guy. He's the fisherman who's kind of the lead apostle. Um, most people think that the Gospel of Mark was, was written along with Peter. And the most common word in the Gospel of Mark is immediately, right? So you're going to see a guy that's always in a hurry. And he's always going to run forward. And he's, always gonna, he's always like, Jesus, I'll never deny you. And then he denies him, right? Like he's the guy who's always going to step up and just barrel in. And we're going to see that in the story. And you've got John. John is the reflective one. Like I said, his gospel, the gospel of John, is kind of the most poetic and artistic one. Uh, tradition tells us he's probably the youngest of the disciples. Uh, so maybe he was kind of shy in that sense as well. And you see him kind of pulling back in some ways and pondering things. So let's look at the story starting in verse 2. So Mary discovers in the darkness that the tomb is empty. What does she do? Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus loved. That's what John called himself. We'll, we'll talk about that at the end. So she went to Peter and John, and she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Because she's freaked out. So when you discover darkness, when you discover emptiness, where you expected to see something, what do you do? Mary's an example for us of run and get help, right? That is one of the ways we can face the darkness. Go and grab a friend. Um, just last week, one of our church members was finding some stuff in his research. He's like, man, I'm really, I have big questions about the reliability of the Old Testament. And he was, he was kind of freaked out. And I was like, man, let's, let's look at this together. Send me some of the things you're reading. Um, he, he ran and got help, right? He's like, I don't understand what's going on. Help me out. We, we'd love to do that with you. If you want someone to work through the questions you have to help you face the darkness, that's why we're here. That's why this community exists. And then we move on past her, and we see the reaction of Peter and John. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love this, these little details, right? You can tell that a man wrote this. John's like, and I beat him to the tomb, right? 
So it's really ironic, too, because throughout the whole gospel, John never names himself. And a lot of people think, yeah, John doesn't name himself because he's really humble. But he wants you to know he was the fastest disciple, okay? <laughs> so John's really fast. He beats Peter to the tomb. It says they're running together. The other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first, verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. So that's an interesting reaction, right? Maybe you're like John. Maybe you're strong. You're gifted. Maybe you get there before other people, but then you stop shy. And you're like, I'm not sure. I'm scared to go in. Maybe I'll see a ghost. I don't know. And you start to back off, right? He's in, then he's out. He doesn't go all the way into the tomb. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. So he's like the bull in a china shop. He just barrels right in. He goes into the tomb. He sees the cloths. Verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, this is really curious. And many commentators have written on, like, what does that mean? So there were the linen cloths that he was wrapped in. Um, and Mary, we understand, was going back to add more spices and more perfumes, and this was the kinds of things they would do. We already saw in John chapter 19 last week that Joseph and Nicodemus had already treated his body with these essential oils and perfumes and things like this. Um, so that was a way of honoring the body in the ancient world. It, it made it not to smell bad, um, but it was also just a way of, of honoring. These were very expensive things, these these oils and these perfumes, these spices. Um, and it was a way that they would honor the body s- similar to how you and I might like go to the grave of someone we love and, and put flowers on it, right? There, there are ways that we respect and honor those that have passed. And this is the kind of thing they would do in their culture. And so what's really interesting here is that they find the cloth folded up and the linen's still there, but the body's not there. Why is that interesting? Well, because in the first century, there were grave robberies all the time. Grave robbing was a common thing. And so on first blush, you would think, oh, there was a grave robber, but it's completely backwards, right? Because these oils were incredibly expensive and linen was incredibly expensive. They they were using their most expensive stuff to honor the dead body. And what would a grave robber do? They'd come in, take the linens and the oils and leave the body. That's what a grave robber would do. So it's one of the little clues of the evidences of the resurrection. There's a million like this. And and while we're on this point of of facing the darkness and facing our confusion, I want to encourage you to become a student that studies these things more because there are many good reasons to trust and believe in the resurrection. And it's really important that we grow in understanding those reasons, that we develop our faith, that we recognize, you know what? I don't want to just turn the other way. Someone told me it's unbelievable, so I'm not going to believe it. But someone says it's unbelievable, we'll say, why? Well, let's ask some questions. Let's, let's look more. Don't just believe the first article you read that says it doesn't make sense, but investigate further. And there's this beautiful key word that we see repeated in the story, and that's they looked and they stooped and they went in. And so that's a really good metaphor for us. When you face a void of, man, I expected to see something there. This is not what I expected at all. Man, the Christian life isn't what I thought it would be. My life isn't what I thought it would be. The Bible isn't what I thought it would be. The encouragement is that you would, you would investigate more. W- will you stoop and look into it? W- will you face the darkness or are you just going to run away? And so I want to encourage you to be one who looks into it. I have a picture here of someone looking into a cave. I've done a lot of cave exploring. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's terrifying, right? kind of depends on the cave. 
And we all have these, these voids, these darknesses, these holes in our knowledge, these holes in our understanding that we come up to, darkness where we can't see clearly. And, and what I want you to understand is the characters of the Bible were not superheroes that had a perfect faith that you'll never have, but they were people like you and me that stumbled to understand the truth, but they kept looking and they kept investigating. And I want to encourage you to be like that. I want to be like that as well. And here's a little hope. It says they continued to investigate this. They saw the cloth to the side. They saw the linen cloth around his head folded up. A lot of people have written on, on what that's about. I don't think we know exactly why it was folded up, but I think it gives a general sense of this was an orderly exit from a tomb, right? <laughs> this points to someone who came back to life and folded up his stuff and set it aside, right? We don't know all the symbolism here, but it, it seems orderly. It doesn't seem like a rushed job. And so in verse 8, it says, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, don't forget, he's the fastest disciple, okay? That other disciple, he also went in and he saw and believed. You, you see him forming belief, faith. The word belief, the word faith can also be uh, the same thing as trust. Do you trust that the story is true? Do you trust that Jesus really has conquered death? So John is forming that kind of belief. He's starting to believe. But what's really interesting here is look at what it says. Verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So it's just this like, he believed. And you know what? He didn't really understand the Old Testament that he had to rise from the dead. They hadn't quite figured that out yet. You see this forming of belief. He's beginning to discover the truth. Again, this calls us into the same process. Are you willing to take a next step with Jesus? I want you to think about it. What is the next step for you facing the darkness of, of what you can't see? What's the dark hallway that you need to go down with the flashlight? What is that for you? How can you investigate this empty tomb some more? How can you stoop to look into what you, you don't really understand? There was a scientist years ago, a um, generation ago, he was actually a peer of Einstein named Michael Polanyi. He, he wrote a lot on how we know things. And because he was a scientist, he was especially interested in this idea of what's sometimes called tacit knowing. But basically the summary would be that everything that we do is a combination of evidence and reason and also faith and belief. And so I want to encourage you that if, you're trying to believe, but you feel like you need more faith, take next steps of investigating the evidence. Look into what is known as the most reliable documents in the history of the world. There's no other historical document that stands up to all the copies that are attested all over the world in different languages and different places and how they match up so beautifully. This, this is the most historically reliable document we've ever had. And so what we need to do is we need to say, well, well, why don't I believe? What's the next step? What can I look into? Don't just stop. Someone says, someone gives you one reason not to believe and you give up. But continue to investigate the evidence. A great book that I would recommend in this process is a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Um, this is, he just lays out the evidence for why we can trust this book, why the resurrection is true. He lays out all the ways that the story makes sense when you compare it to other stories, when you compare it to the alternatives. I mean, think about the alternatives to the resurrection. All the alternatives don't make sense. 
And so another book I would recommend, this one's The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Another one is called The Reason for God. The Reason for God by Tim Keller talks about this process of beginning to doubt our doubts. We all have reasons to believe, and we all have reasons to not believe. So Strobel does a good reason, a good job of saying, here are the reasons to believe. Keller does a good job saying, well, well, here's what you say you don't believe because of this. Well, let's, let's pick at that a little bit. Let's begin to doubt our doubts. I just would encourage you to face the darkness. There are holes in your knowledge. Continue to pursue. Continue to look into this faith, into this person who's changed the world, who's impacted the world like, like no one else. Um, stoop and look and investigate. And I, I personally would love to talk to you more about that. That's one of my favorite things. When I became a believer, I became very vividly convinced that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. So we call that moment of truth faith. I put my faith in Jesus. Man, Jesus, he loves me. He gave himself for me. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. It's a clear moment as a young man. But I still had all kinds of questions. When I read the Bible, I was like, well, what about, what about this? And how do I make sense of that? And I continued to read and to study. And I just want to encourage you that that's a natural process. As you follow Jesus, you'll have questions. It doesn't mean you don't have faith anymore. It just means you have a hole in your knowledge. There's darkness for you to face and to investigate. I want to encourage you to keep looking into it. And I'd love to talk you through that process myself. Finally, we want to think about what it means to find light in the darkness. How do we then find light in the darkness? You might be thinking, Dave, you don't understand you don't understand how deep I am. You don't understand how much shame I have. You don't understand how unworthy I am. You don't understand, maybe, how smart I am and all the reasons I see not to believe. Whatever your situation, Jesus speaks to that situation. He calls our name right where we are. And we see this beautiful picture with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a character, again, full of shame. She'd had uh, multiple demons cast out of her. She was someone who was not um, not the, the best of people, the kind of person that you might be kind of scared of, right? But Jesus had dignified her and loved her and healed her. Verse 11 picks up the story with her. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. There's that looking in again. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. It's this beautiful, personal moment. Jesus spoke right to her. He said, Mary. And suddenly she recognizes him. She responds, teacher, this is her Lord. This is her Savior. This is the one who'd shown her dignity when no one else would. This is the one who healed her when her life was overtaken with demons. And I want you to see that that's the kind of Savior that we have. The person who is in the deepest shame, Jesus, Jesus looks her in the eye and says, I value you. You are made in the image of God. I will bring you healing. I will give you light. That's the Savior standing in front of you. He wants to call your name. Now, we can be skeptical about this, right? We can think, well, Dave, I don't know if Jesus will ever audibly say my name out loud. And that's, that's not really what I'm saying. What we understand as Christians is that when you really see who God is through Jesus, 
you begin to hear God's voice and you begin to hear him calling your name. Again, it's not, it's not an audible thing, but you begin to have a new identity. As John says in John chapter one, there's two kinds of people. There's people who are, are born of the flesh, just normal, natural people. And then there are people that are born of God. And we know that we have rights as his children. Do you know God in that way? Do you know that you are his child, that he loves you? If you see who God is through Jesus, giving himself for you, calling you to himself, forgiving your sins, giving you his righteousness, then that is ultimately hearing him call your name. Coca-Cola has uh, realized how important it is that we would hear someone call our name. And they've got this campaign, right? I think it's been going on for a couple of years now where they put personal names on their Coke bottles. Have y'all seen that? Any of you have a Coke bottle with your name? Everybody with normal names maybe does. If you have a weird name, too bad, sorry. Um, But it's really fascinating because we've got this global corporate entity who's basically trying to kill you with a sugar addiction saying, oh, we, we care about you. We personally love you, right? And putting your name on their bottles. And so we can be cynical about this kind of thing. We're in a culture we've been oversold, right? Been there, done that. We've seen people trying to lure us in. What I want you to understand is one of the reasons, just like the resurrection story, one of the reasons that we know that this is believable is because it doesn't flatter us, right? Think about that for a second. Everything else in American culture is like, you're awesome. I want you on my team, right? And Christianity is like, you're a broken sinner, You are dying in your sin. You need God to forgive you for your sins. The only way we can come to the cross is through that humbling, recognizing how utterly broken we are, how we are stumbling around in the darkness, and we need the light. We can't come up with the light on our own. One of the other things that's really interesting in this story is that Christianity makes a woman, and actually you look at the other gospels, several other women, friends of Mary Magdalene, the first witnesses to the resurrection, which is another evidence of its truth, right? Because there's this kind of misconception that Christianity uh, holds down women, but actually if you look at world history um, and you're historically informed, you recognize that Christianity is actually the religion that elevated women and said, women are also made in the image of God and have value just like men do. And we should nurture and protect and care for them, not oppress them and not hold them down. And so Christianity does that even in just making women the first witnesses of the resurrection. Like Jesus had some control over this. He could have appeared to whoever he wanted to and he chose women to be the first witnesses, which is another evidence of the resurrection because in that day and time in both Jewish courts and Roman courts, women were not allowed to be witnesses. That's how bad, that's how backwards things were in the first century. They didn't consider women to be uh, valuable as witnesses. They couldn't be trusted. Jesus says, I trust you. And he makes women the first witnesses. One of the ways you could think about this is, is one of the things that makes Christianity believable is that they, they tell the story badly by first century standards, right? I'm not saying it's a bad story. I'm saying it's the best story that's ever been told. But by first century cultural standards, they're telling the story badly. Because if you were gonna lie and deceive people, if you were gonna make up a story that was believable, you would have to fit their beliefs. And their beliefs were women can't be trusted. You shouldn't tell it that way. But that, all the Gospels tell it that way. Yeah, the women were the first witnesses. So two things happening there. It's, it's honoring women, but it's also saying, we're not going to make stuff up. We're not going to sell you a bill of goods. We're just going to tell you the story how it happened. 
This is how it happened. You see the founders always looking stupid, right? You see all kinds of stuff in here that, that just smells of truth, that makes it historically and journalistically verifiable. So Jesus calls Mary's name. And apparently, we don't know exactly, you know, physically what happens, but he says, don't cling to me. So I'm guessing she just like threw herself on his feet, probably, right? Because we've seen those kind of interactions before. And he's like, don't cling to me because I'm going away. Now, John 14, he clarifies he's sending the Spirit. So he's not really abandoning us, but physically he's not going to be with us anymore. So the way the story unfolds, he makes some, some more resurrection appearances to make sure they understand that he has conquered sin and death. But then he goes to be with the Father and he sends the Spirit to comfort us and help us in this age that we live in. Jesus said, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended to the Father yet, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to you. And so again, we see this beautiful picture of Jesus meeting us right where we are. This is how you can find light in the darkness, is seeing what God has done for us in Jesus. That's how you will hear him calling your name. And if you don't fit the story of Mary Magdalene, flip through the rest of the Gospel of John. John chapter 4, we see Jesus showing dignity and love and forgiveness to the Samaritan woman who was caught in sexual sin and who was an outcast in her society. In John chapter 5, we see Jesus healing a paralyzed man who seemed at some level to not even want to be healed. And in John chapter 8, we see him showing himself as the light of the world. In John chapter 9, healing a blind man to prove that he really is the light of the world. In John chapter 3, he comes to a religious man and he's kind enough to show that religious man that his religion is not enough, but that you must be born again. So all of this points us to this recognition of what Jesus has done for us, giving our life to him. And when you do that, you hear him calling your name. And so then we can actually think of ourselves the way the Apostle John did. So I said John never names himself in the Gospel of John. He always refers to himself as either the other disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. And that kind of sounds a little stuck up, right? Oh, he was the one that Jesus loved. But what I want you to see is that's actually how all of us should see our relationship with Jesus. And that's my final charge to you. Do you see yourself as someone that God's kind of disappointed in? God kind of doesn't like? Not good enough? Or do you actually believe the gospel? That he likes you so much that he died for you. He gives you his life. If you understand what Jesus did for you, you will actually believe that you are the one that Jesus loved. Do you believe that? Have you found light in Christ? Again, John takes us to this again and again throughout the gospel. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't stumble around in darkness anymore. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you give us light, that you give us life, that you give us hope in Christ. Help us to see the truth. Help us to trust you. Pray, Father, that you would make us new as your sons and daughters. Help us to live as your children who know your delight, who believe that you actually like us. And we thank you for revealing yourself this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.